Good evening. Certainly good to see everyone tonight. I think we have a number of folks out out of town on vacation, and that's that time of year. But we're thankful that we're able to be here tonight as we close out this Lord's Day together, studying God's Word. The lesson entitled tonight is Narrow-Minded Jesus. You know, we live in a a world that doesn't like restricted, narrow-minded thinking. Society demands open thinking or broad-mindedness is another way to say that. Society would have us to say, choose the church of your choice. Society would say marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is just fine. It's maybe an alternate lifestyle, but it's just okay. We are never to be exclusive on these matters of great moral and spiritual significance. I think we all recognize that's the world in which we live in, isn't it? You remember John chapter 14, verse number 6. Jesus speaking there, he just, I believe he anticipated the anxiety that was going on in the minds of his closest disciples on the fact that he had told them that he's going to leave this world. And you remember he starts there in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. And he goes on to talk about mansions he's prepared in heaven and all those things. And then Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, asks the question, Lord, how do we know where you're going and how do we know the way? Jesus responds, verse number 6, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except or through me. I emphasize there the word the, the way, the truth, and the life. That sounds pretty narrow, doesn't it? That sounds pretty exclusive, Jesus' words there. You know, I believe that throughout the New Testament, Jesus' doctrine, his teaching concerning righteous living and salvation and all those kind of things that he taught was narrow-minded. Don't let the world think, let you make you think that because you stand upon the truth of God's Word, they may call you names, but don't let that discourage you. Don't let that dissuade you from following the truthfulness and the narrowness of God's Word. Jesus was open to all who would come to Him to be saved. You remember Matthew 11, there beginning in verse number 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, through verse 30. His narrowness continues. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 7, verse number 21, a very familiar passage, a very difficult passage oftentimes for us to contemplate. You know the verse, Matthew 7 and verse number 21. Again, Jesus speaking there and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? That sounds pretty narrow. Tonight, I want to look at several different aspects of Jesus' teaching, his doctrine, his life, where he was narrow-minded. There's six points in our lesson. Don't let that scare you. We will... Click those off fairly quickly. Point number one. Jesus was narrow-minded about 
righteous living. What does righteous living mean of this word righteous? It means live right. Well, with that in, in mind, you've got to determine what's right versus what's wrong. Our world has a twisted concept of right and wrong. The world thinks it has the power to define what is right and what is wrong. But I would submit for our thinking it's God who defines and sets the bounds around what's right and what's wrong. God is always right, isn't he? So his instruction about living, his instruction about all the aspects of worship, all the things that we do and say as a Christian are right when we follow God's instruction. If you have your Bibles open there in Matthew, back up to chapter 5. Matthew 5 and verse number 20. Jesus, again, is here speaking, talking, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day thought they were righteous. They were righteous in their own minds. They portrayed themselves to be righteous, but you know how on many occasions Jesus called them out on their righteousness. And he exposed the er erroneous ways in which they were applying or misapplying, if you will, God's instruction concerning living. Here in Jesus' day, these religious leaders were saying, but not doing. You know, there's a lesson in there for us as well, isn't there? We need to be doing what we're saying. It's, whole, it's oftentimes easy to say something, but it's a whole lot more difficult to do it and put it in practice, isn't it? You know, Jesus stressed the seriousness of living for God. You remember, you'll, this is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Jesus was as a boy. His parents uh, went to Jerusalem, as Jews did, once a year to, for the Passover and those sorts of things. And uh, they were traveling back home, and you know how they, they were several days journey into their trip and realized Jesus wasn't with them. So they turned and went back and found him there in the temple discussing things concerning the law. He was 12 years old. But you remember what he said recorded in Luke 2 and 49, I must be about my father's business. Jesus knew the seriousness of living for God. You know, this is a mindset I believe that we need as well as Christians. We need to realize the seriousness of living for God. Righteous living is not optional. Righteous living is not just something you do when it's convenient or when you don't have something else that you want to do. God demands it. You recall what Paul said by inspiration as he was writing to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It's a, it's a transformation. We must not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We've got to sacrifice and, and serve God. That's oftentimes difficult in a world that is all about broad-minded thinking and open-minded thinking. I believe exclusive living for Christ means that we'll make real sacrifices every day for Him. Look there in Luke chapter 9 and verse number 23. Luke 9, 23.
Jesus said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross every now and then. When it's convenient, when you feel like it. No, he doesn't say that, does it? What's that next word? Take up your cross daily and follow me. We won't take the time to turn to it, but Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He, he talks about how we are bought with a price. We are not our own. Have you ever thought about that? We are not our own. We are bought with a price. We need to live that way. It's no longer about self. Exclusive living for Christ means that we're going to put self on a shelf and not focus on things of ourselves. Put Christ first. We follow the pattern for righteousness found in Scripture. Again, example of Paul. You remember what he wrote in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus wants 100% effort. So Jesus was narrow-minded about righteous living. Secondly, tonight, Jesus was narrow-minded about being converted. What does that word converted bring to your mind? It means turn, change, doesn't it? We'll talk in a moment about repentance, but this conversion process that we have to go through when we become Christians... It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to be converted fully to Christ. Many people have been a Christian 30, 40, 50 years and are still not really converted to Christ. They're not convinced that living for Christ is what they need to be doing. Look at Luke chapter 18. Narrow-minded concerning being converted. Luke 18, verse 15, beginning. Then they also brought infants to him, talking about Jesus, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for as such, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will no by means, by, by means enter it. You've got to be converted. You've got to humble yourself. Think about little children. They're humble, aren't they? They're trustful. They trust their parents and they trust things. We must give up ourselves and trust Jesus. It calls for, Jesus calls for total commitment. You remember the account that we read in Mark chapter 10. We won't turn to it, but it was, we call it the rich young ruler. The, the account of the rich young ruler. Jesus told him exactly what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. But the scripture records he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to be committed to Jesus, to a life of living for Jesus Christ. Revelation 2 and verse number 10. You know the passage. Be thou faithful unto death, Jesus says, and I will give you a crown of life. That sounds like commitment, doesn't it? A lifetime of commitment. 
Jesus wants us to fully convert to him, trusting him, following him, so we can have that crown of life that he has prepared and he's ready to give to the faithful. So Jesus was narrow-minded about righteous living, being converted. Thirdly, Jesus was narrow-minded in his teaching about the essentiality of repentance. What does the word repentance mean to you? Again, I would submit for our thinking, it means a change, a turning, a change of mind about sinful living, about living for things of the world. Let's look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, beginning. There were present at that season some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answered them and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all others? who dwell in Jerusalem, I tell you no, verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's Jesus saying there? What about these other people that, that, that died and that perished and things happened to them? Were they worse than sinners than any others? Jesus says no, don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. John we call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, the pre-runner for Jesus, preparing the way for the Messiah. He preached a message of repentance. He preached a message of change, a message of turning in preparation for Jesus Christ. What do we mean by repentance? Is it just an outward show, as many would teach? There's an Old Testament example. Turn back to Joel chapter 2. Old Testament prophet Joel chapter 2. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. <clears throat> Verse number 13. God, through the prophet Joel, tells the children of Israel there, so, he says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You know, the children of Israel had a, a great way of showing, making an outward show of their repentance. You know, they would oftentimes tear their clothes. They would sit in ashes. They would put ashes on their head and all those kind of things. But what, that, that's not what God wanted. What was God saying here through the pen of Joel? The repentance takes place in the heart. He says, rend your heart. Change your heart back towards me. And you know the children of Israel would have not suffered nearly what they did if they had been willing to do that. But you know their plight. You know, true repentance is a changed way of thinking that results in a changed way of acting. Godly sorrow or grief over sin produces repentance. 
I must amend my ways, see what God wants me to do, and turn to God and His will. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, beginning. Paul's writing to Christians there in first century Thessalonica. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all of those in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from, from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had into you and how you turned to God, that's repentance, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivered us all from the wrath to come. So part of living a Christian life, a changed Christian life is repenting, changing. You know, even as Christians, we oftentimes have the need to repent, don't we? And I would submit to you my personal feeling about repentance is it's the hardest thing to do because it demands that we change. We don't like to change, but God demands it. So Jesus was narrow-minded about the essentiality of repentance. Fourthly tonight, Jesus was narrow-minded about the essentiality of baptism. You know, the world likes to teach that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. That is a common, popular teaching amongst our denominational uh, friends today. People do not see the importance of baptism. They might say it's something good to do, or you need to do it to be recognized or to join a particular church, but it's not essential to one's salvation. Regardless of what men say, what matters is what Jesus says. Oh, how I wish we could get the world to understand that. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 48, My words will judge you in the last day. Basically, he's telling us what we're going to be judged by. I remember back in school, I liked to hear the words from the teacher, Open book test. Well, I soon found out that open book tests are not all that easy. There's a reason why they do that. It's to make you dig and to look, and it's not just going to be a copy, you know, copy the answer verbatim right out of the book. But Jesus is basically telling us we're going to have an open book test. The day of judgment, there's not going to be any surprises about how he's going to judge us. We have in his word exactly what he's going to judge us by. We need to live by that. All that matters is what God's word says, not what men say. What did Jesus say concerning baptism? You remember there in John, recorded in John chapter 3. Verse 1, beginning, there's this man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus secretly by night. And he said, Teacher, we know you are come from God, or you've got God with you because the way the, the things that you do, no man has been able to do these things unless God is with him. Verse number 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you notice there those words, the word unless? You know, I read out of the New King James translation. The word in King James Version is except, unless or except. That sounds fairly narrow, doesn't it? Restrictive, doesn't it? Exclusive? Exactly right. It is essential, according to Jesus, for one to be born of water and the Spirit to get into the kingdom. That kingdom is the place, I would submit for our thinking, the only place, according to God's Word, where we will be saved from God's judgment. You remember a very familiar passage, words of Jesus, we call it the Great Commission. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That's what Jesus said. Did he say, believe only? No. Did he say, be baptized only? No. Believe and be baptized. We've talked before about that conjunction and, haven't we? Brings things together. It's a theme that plays over and over in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. We won't take the time to turn to it because you're familiar with the passages, Acts 2, 37, 38, 40, and 47. Baptism is for the remission of sin. Someone going from a lost state to a saved state. You remember Saul of Tarsus was blinded there on the road to Damascus. Many people say he was saved right there. Well, if he was, he didn't know it. Ananias didn't know it, the man God sent to, to teach him what he needed to do. But Paul, from his own words in Acts 22, verse 16, told us what he did. Arise and be baptized, wash away your sin, calling on the name of the Lord. Similar thing in 1 Peter 3, and verse 21. The like figure, therefore, baptism doth also now save us. Can you get any plainer than that? But people want to argue with that. Sin separates. We know that from Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. It's a barrier that brings separation. You know, if I, if I can know the moment that barrier is removed, I can know the moment I'm saved. Peter would go on to say there in 1 Peter 3.21, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. When I realize and I'm convinced and convicted that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God, what do I want? I want a clean conscience. How do I get it? The Bible plainly tells us. God's Word plainly states baptism saves us. Why would anyone say it's not essential to the salvation of my soul? We must realize that is how we get into Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Jesus did teach, except. He did teach, unless one is baptized, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So to our point, Jesus was narrow-minded about the essentiality of baptism. Point number five tonight, Jesus was narrow-minded concerning 
the fullness and inspiration of God's holy word. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, in verse number 35, Jesus was talking in context about the end of the world. But he says, these things shall pass away, but my word will not pass away. In John 10, in verse number 35, Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. And we know, recorded in John 17, 17, there in the garden on the night that he would be betrayed, he would pray unto God, verse 17 of John 17, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. You know, without the Bible, without understanding, without knowing and being fully convinced of the fact that this Bible is God's word, where is our faith? Many people want to accuse us of having a blind faith, that we just believe things just because we believe them. Well, our faith is based on evidence, the evidence that God has supplied in his holy word. Romans 10 and verse 17, it's the foundation of our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how everybody for all time has gotten their faith whether if God spoke to them directly or through prophets or, or whatever, or through the written word. That's how faith is built, is through the word of God. Read, read Hebrews 11. You, know, you notice that Abel was mentioned there. He didn't have God's written word. God spoke. But he was able to take what God had s- said to him and build a faithful life. Scripture confirms this throughout. One of my favorite passages, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is, in, is given by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for all those things that Paul mentions there. Peter would say this, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along or born along or moved along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1. And verse number 21, God's word is something we need to stand firm on. Point number six, our final point tonight. Jesus was narrow-minded concerning his second coming. We made reference earlier to Matthew chapter 24. Let's turn there quickly and look at one verse. Matthew chapter 24. Talking about Jesus' second coming. Jesus in his own words, verse 36 of Matthew 24, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Is Christ going to come again? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know, Paul, I believe, dealt a lot with the, the, the thought that many people there in the first century had that because Jesus had delayed his coming, it had been 30 or 40 years since he had left and gone back to heaven, that he wasn't going to come. Well, he, he, again, he's, he deals with this in, the, in his letters to the Thessalonica church. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. 
Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this I say to you, and by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is coming again. The message for us is to be ready. Again, I make reference to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 44. Again, in that same discourse, Jesus talking to his disciples. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There'll be no warning. There'll be no signs. It will happen, as the scripture tells us, as a thief in the night. But we, the message to us is to be prepared. You know, earlier we quoted John 14, verse 6. If we tie that into the fact that Jesus is coming back, we need to realize that Jesus was narrow-minded on righteous living. Jesus was narrow-minded on being converted. The essentiality of repentance and baptism the completeness and inspiration of God's holy word. And finally, he was narrow-minded on his final coming. As we draw this to a close tonight, if someone calls you narrow-minded, don't take that as an insult. If you're standing on the truth of God's word, you're believing that, applying it in your life, teaching it, living according to it, because Jesus was narrow-minded. Is there a way, any other way, to be saved outside of Christ? Jesus' own words says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man comes to the Father except by me. Outside of Jesus, you cannot, I would even go as far as saying it's impossible to get to the Father. John 3 and verse number 16, a very familiar passage, a well-known passage even in our world. God sent his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the critics would say, well, he didn't say you've got to be baptized and all those other things. He didn't have to. Go back in the very first part of John chapter 3. We made reference to it already. Same conversation with that man Nicodemus. Jesus had already established the fact that you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. God made salvation available so all of us could be saved and live one day with him in heaven. God desires all to be saved. Second Peter 3 and verse number 9. The lesson is yours. Tonight, if you're here, outside the body of Christ, not having put on Christ in baptism, as the Bible teaches, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Romans 6, 3 and 4, and other places, tonight's a perfect opportunity for you to do just that. Or as a Christian, 
you may have wandered away. As we made mention of, sin separates us from God. But the blood of Christ continues to flow from Calvary, thankfully, to cleanse us from our sins when we're willing to repent. And we talked about the, the need to change. If it's public in nature, it needs to be repented of in that same way. As a Christian, God demands that there's a certain way that we live. Jesus said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And as a Christian, we need to broadcast. We need to plant the seed of God's holy word in this world. Will all of it spring forth and and produce new Christians? No. But some will. And because someone calls us narrow-minded or exclusive and all those things, don't let that discourage us from sowing the seed. God will give the increase in his time and in his way. Tonight, if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come as we stand and as we sing?